Good evening and welcome to yet another episode of Across the Pond. Pond, across the pond with Barry and Chad. If you are new here, I am in London, in England, and tuned in via Facebook Messenger Rooms this time is my co-host Barry Maurice, and he is in Johannesburg. How are you doing today, Barry? I'm doing very well, Chad. It's uh, coming to you from a rather chilly Johannesburg, uh, certainly by our standards, uh, but all good this side. It's been a good Monday so far. How are you doing, Chad? Yeah, no, really good. Uh, fresh week, fresh new perspective on everything. We always like that new reset button that comes on a Monday, um, and yeah, really just keen to get this productive week off to a good start. On that note, shall we dig into our episode, Barry? Let's look at the week that was. The week that was. Alrighty, so let's start off this week that was with one of the big tech giants that we love to talk a lot about, and that is Google. Today we're talking about their browser, Google Chrome, and I don't think we've actually spoken about it before, Barry, and we are specifically today talking about the incognito mode. Now, the mode alone, just that name, um, definitely does infer quite a lot of privacy, secrecy, etc. but it's come about that um, potentially there actually is not as much privacy as what we think. And there's actually a lawsuit now for the amount of $5 billion um, about Google actually tracking data when users are in that mode. What do you think? I thought it was a fascinating story to pick out because I've been thinking about this a little bit in the past because, like you say, incognito mode sounds like it's this completely private, no one can see what you're doing there yeah. and it hides your browsing, browsing history and all that good stuff. But unfortunately, if you actually read the small print and you actually read what it actually means, it's not that at all, right? All it kind of does is hides the browsing history from people on your computer per yeah. se. But Google's still getting all the data and they're still getting everything behind the scenes. And so I think it's an interesting kind of idea as to what, what does that incognito word actually infer? What does it actually imply? Yep. And what are people taking from it? And do people realize what's actually going on when they're in that mode? And I don't think people are, Chad. I think people are kind of assume that it means completely private, but it's just not the case. Absolutely. Well, I mean, this suit is a class action suit. So quite a few people have come forward together and are taking them all on. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. At this moment, there's been a bit of a statement from their side to say that they've, they're pretty happy with the messaging that they've been putting across um, and basically saying that they're adequately covered by the messages that pop up when you open a new tab in that mode. I've actually just taken a little screen grab of that here in front of me now. And um, basically what it says is now you can browse privately and other people who you use this device won't see your activity. However, downloads and bookmarks will be saved. Chrome won't save the following information, which includes your browsing history, cookies and site data, information entered in forms, but they do say that your activity might still be visible to websites that you visit, your employer or school, and your internet service provider. I don't know about you, Barry, but I've never actually looked at that when I've opened a new tab in this mode. <laughs> it's another example of when we don't read the fine print, right? It's, it's right there in black and white. And, yeah. and that to me looks pretty clear when you read that out. But I agree with you, Chad. I don't read the screen when I come to the tab because I'm so busy getting onto something else, right? And I think that it's important for us to realize that these things are in place for a reason and to really understand what we're doing when we go into these various things. So I think Google's got a pretty good shot here. I don't see how uh, this lawsuit can actually go forward, but it depends on exactly what they are alleging is happening, what is happening with that data behind the scenes. Of course, we have to remember that Google sells this data, right? They live on yep. this data. This is the fuel for Google. And so it's so important. So you can imagine they wouldn't want to give this up. 
if they had a mode which was completely private and everyone could just use that mode, it might sink the whole of Google, right? It defeats the whole point. Mm -hmm. And so I think this mode is an interesting one. It's kind of like a user experience thing. It's like, do people realize what it's actually for and what it's, what it's, what it's doing when you're in that mode? And if you read this, it's pretty clear to me, Chad. Absolutely. Don't disagree with you there, Barry. Well, let's then move on to the next one. And obviously, this is an extension we had last week on the conversation about the passing of George Floyd, and I suppose the wider conversation that's been started on the back of that. And these protests have been happening throughout the globe. We did touch last week on a few of the ones in the US and, and obviously how that's been happening. But obviously, as we are both located in England and South Africa, respectively, I thought it'd be a good idea for us to chat about what's been happening in our own sort of jurisdictions. And basically what happened this past weekend was that there was a protest happening in Bristol. And I actually watched this video clip of the protesters gathering together and tearing down a statue, physically tearing down a statue of a guy who was apparently a slave trader. His name is Edward Colston. And what they actually did was they literally tore it down rolled it across and actually threw it into a river. Certainly very interesting to watch this video. Um, and, I'm, and I was glad I, I did see it just to kind of have a look at what's actually happening on the ground. And uh, I mean, if you look at what statues are for and the messaging that they portray and that kind of thing, you know, statues are about saying this is a great man who did great things. And uh, apparently if you look at this man and, and, you know, his history, this was not true. Um, he was a slave trader and a murderer. Um, but at the same time, you know, Boris Johnson's come through and said he understands the deep feelings and he understands the, the messaging here. But there are diplomatic ways of getting statues like these removed. We've seen similar things like this happen in South Africa in Rhodes. Um, I, I definitely remember that, Barry. But just an interesting escalation on what we discussed last week. Yeah, it really is. And it's one of those theatrical moments that really does capture the media's attention, right? As you say, statues are so in enigmatic of someone to look up to, some sort of role model, some sort of idealized person that we want to memorialize after they're dead. Yep. And, and like you said, we've seen a lot of it in South Africa. In South Africa, there's a lot of, there were a lot of statues up to apartheid generals and to those kind of things from, from South Africa's old past. Yep. And when we try and move into a more democratic past, we kind of recognize some of the crimes against humanity and some of the, the oppression of the past. Those statues obviously pull down because people don't want those symbols around. Because symbols are very important, right? Yep. Symbols are kind of how we have shorthand for, for where we want to go as a society. And that's why it's so important. The other side of this debate, of course, is should you just have the right to go and pull down any statue that you want, right? Sure. So Boris makes the point that there are other channels to go through to try and get these things like to happen, right? And obviously it's a very topical moment right now, so I understand why it happened now because sure. everyone is talking about this discussion. But at the same time, we have to be careful about setting a precedent where you can just go and tear down anything that you want. And so that's a very difficult discussion. I think that um, sometimes we forget that these people are part of history, and we don't actually want to forget about them. We want to be able to remember what they did so we learn from the mistakes of the past, yep. right? And so I, I think that statues is a clear one. I think we should be pulling statues down of those we don't think are idealized people in the, in, in the future. But we can't forget about people like this because in the moment we forget about them, we are more likely to repeat the mistakes in the future. Yep. So history is one of those things where we have to be able to look back and, and objectively look at all the things that happened, the facts that happened and, and what and why they happened and use that to plot our path forward. So it's a, it's a delicate debate here, Chad. I think that it's obviously a very emotional time right now. Yeah. Um, but to watch a video like that is quite shocking. 
Well, there was that video, Barry, and then there was the next one, which is the one that I'm going to talk about as well, which was a protest that started out pretty peaceful at, from the looks of it. It was essentially a march from the US Embassy south of the river all the way to the Parliament Square. And what happened here is that there was quite a bit of unrest at the end, actually. Um, there was missiles basically by all of the protesters, fireworks as well, they were being aimed at the police. And I even watched a, a bit of a traumatic event, really, where somebody threw a bicycle, one of the public bicycles that they have here, the Santander bicycles, at one of the polices who was on top of a horse, um, which certainly, certainly is traumatic to watch. Um, and all in all, we've got 27 police officers who have been hurt by this. And on the back of that, a no-nonsense, really, uh, follow-up with 14 arrests that we've seen. Additionally to this, we also saw one of the statues in Westminster being vandalized as well. And that's of somebody that we've spoken about before on the podcast as well, Winston Churchill, where the protesters have actually graffitied over his name and graffitied he was a racist, as well as taped a sign to his waist as well. Um, so again, really interesting to see uh, all of these developments, but interesting to see the response, um, I suppose, from the law enforcement agencies here in the UK. I suppose it's interesting to note that because obviously we saw Trump respond with the National Guard and uh, some really very quick escalation that side as well. And I guess that just plays into the strategy here too. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's one of those things where it has to happen, right? You, you have to condemn that sort of violence, that sort of vandalism, that sort of uh, whatever looting or whatever, whatever riots are happening in, in, in these sorts of things. So it falls upon law enforcement to actually find the people who are doing these things and bring them to justice, right? We have to be careful about letting these things get out of hand. And there's, there's a very big difference between protests with the right kind of incentives and the right intents and the right motives versus people taking advantage and, and doing sure. things like throwing bicycles at horses and, and those sorts of things. And we have to be able to fight against that. We have to condemn that at its very, very core and make it clear that that's not part of this discussion, right? It's been such a it's been such an interesting global conversation, such an important global conversation. You don't want it to be overshadowed by exactly. just nonsense, right? You don't yeah. want to be overshadowed by by silly things. And, and obviously the media is going to focus on those sorts of stories because they are sensational and they are yeah. quite theatrical. Um, and we have to be careful to not let that dominate the conversation and bring it back to the actual pillars of this debate. And that requires law enforcement to actually enforce the law. I know in the U.S. right now it must be terrifying to be a cop because you've got this job to you've got this job to do, and you've got all these these very very emotional and, and high energy and lots of these protests going around. And you must be scared to act because of yep. course you are in the spotlight as the police. And so I do not envy them in the slightest. I think yep. it's a very very difficult job right now. And uh, it's, but it's an important one to make sure these protests uh, look after people, that people are safe, and that uh, we really make sure we're focusing on the right issues and not on kind of the side, the side um, stories about paraphernalia and vandalism and, and violence. 100%. Well, why don't you talk us through uh, one of the marches that happened in South Africa as well, Barry? Yeah, so I don't have much information here. It was kind of it wasn't as big as I expected it to be, but in South Africa we had two solidarity marches on the weekend, right. one in Johannesburg and one in Pretoria. So the Johannesburg one was from Constitutional Hill and to the US consulate. That was kind yeah. of the two the two places. And in Pretoria it was at the US embassy and at the union buildings. And basically what it was was just a plain solidarity march in solidarity with the people in the US and around the world. So everyone was wearing black, they were in their face masks, they were trying to do social distancing Amazing. as best they can during yep. a protest. Um, 
and it wasn't it wasn't like a ginormous thing. I only kind of heard about it on Instagram. I think it was very much a grassroots movement for people who really feel passionate about the yeah. subject and wanted to get out there and really show their voices. Of course, in South Africa, we have a very different context to this discussion than, say, sure. the U.S. does, based on our history and based on what South Africa has gone through. Yeah. And also, I think a different context because of where we are in the coronavirus struggle. So, I think in the U.S., things have started to stabilize a little bit, and they've kind of got their numbers almost under control. Whereas in South Africa, we're seeing a huge rise at the moment as lockdown starts to ease. So I think all of these factors plays into it. In South Africa, we've got a lot of stuff to worry about um, at the moment ourselves. And so these marches were purely that, purely solidarity, people standing up for what is right in these debates, or what they think is right. And uh, I think it was very good to see it was not violent, there was no looting, there was none of that stuff. It was a peaceful protest that went quite well. Yeah, that's amazing. And I'd rather we actually speak about those types of protests, the ones that are, I suppose, more uneventful in terms of, like you say, the antics and the, the writing and the violence that we see in some of the other ones. I'd rather we actually cast a light onto those ones. And uh, hopefully that sets the tone. I really enjoy hearing about stories and cases like these, I suppose, coming from South Africa, which really seems to be quite mature and really seem to be, I suppose, setting the example, which is really nice to see on the world stage, Barry. It's, it's been rare in the last couple of decades, Chad, so it really is nice to see. I must say, I've been very impressed with how South Africa's dealt with things so far. Um, we, we certainly have our problems, we certainly have our challenges, yeah. um, and there's a lot of challenges ahead as we start to deal with this virus on a more serious scale. But for the moment, I'm quite confident that we're going to be able to get through this thing, and hopefully yeah. I'm not proven wrong. Absolutely. Well, I hope that is the case, Barry. And uh, hopefully when that does happen, we emerge into a world um, that has not been just damaged as much as this oil spill that happened this past week um, from Russia. Take us through it. So what a segue, Chad. What a segue. Indeed, <laughs> indeed. We are talking about the oil spill um, into the Arctic Sea, Chad. And unfortunately, it's quite a quite a devastating uh, little impact here. Basically, what happened was that there were 20,000 tons of red diesel spilled into a river called Ambernaya, which is in Russia, which then leaked into the Arctic Ocean. Right. And so a huge amount of oil leaking into that ocean. I mean, it, some say it's going to take decades to clean this up. And uh, it really is worrying because it's going to do a lot of damage to the ecosystem in that ocean. Uh, Vladimir Putin, the Russian president, has declared a state of emergency over this okay. thing. So they're really putting everything they can to try and solve this, try and clean it up as quickly as possible. But it's going to do a lot of damage to the ecosystem, to the animals living there, to the plants around that area. It really is a terrifying thing. When you see the video and you see the, 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 the pictures, mm. it really is devastating. <laughs> Looking at why they think the spill happened, apparently what happened was it was caused by a power plant, so we know that, and they are theorizing that it collapsed because there were abnormally high temperatures during the summer, okay. which melted the permafrost there and caused the pillars of the power plant to sink. Okay. So it's so a very, very strange reason. It kind of they, They're still investigating it to see if that's really the case, but that's their best guess so far. And what it kind of points to is, is what climate change is doing to the Russian peninsula, right? So a lot of these power plants are based on traditional Russian weather and kind of they're built to, to stand the kind of cold that we normally associate with Russia and all the frost and the ice and the snow. Um, but climate change is really raising Russia's temperatures quite quickly, especially in the northern parts. And uh, this permafrost apparently has melted and therefore the, the, wow. the pillars, the foundations of that plant have started to, to sink into the ground. And so the oil leaked into the groundwater, into the river there, and then now into the ocean. So really it's a devastating, devastating thing. Hopefully they can do a good job of cleaning it up. But unfortunately, I, I fear a lot of the damage has already been done. 
absolutely horrible to hear about, especially when you look at something like oil um, that really is just so hard to to, to get to, um, especially once, like you say, the damage has been done. I suppose we've seen leaks like this in the past few years. You know, we saw the one with BP that we've spoken about on the podcast before as well. And uh, I suppose, like you say, it's all about the ecosystems. It's all about the life that really needs that environment. Um, and yeah, just something that's so devastating to see. For me, it's almost poetic in a, in a way to see that the cause of this which is damaging the environment is due to something that we've been doing to the environment already, which is, you know, the effects of climate change. Don't you think that's a little bit poetic? Definitely. And it kind of talks to all the compound effects of climate change that we don't really think about, right? So you think about ice caps melting, you think about kind of uh, rainforests and all these sorts of direct impacts. Yeah. What you don't think about is is the way we've built our worlds for a certain kind of range of criteria and a yeah. certain range of weather patterns. And if those change, the way we built our world might not be relevant anymore, might not be suitable. Um, and so I think climate change is that that 800-foot gorilla in the room, which, which no one wants to talk about. And it's yeah. very debatable and it's very controversial in some, in some places, but it's doing real damage. And we have to be aware of these stories, we have to be aware of these things to realize what we're doing to the earth by, by the nature of how our world is right now and this is yet another example of a kind of prediction or kind of uh, event we could never have forecast or never could have predicted and if it is true that it's completely due to this permafrost we have to really rethink what we're doing and and really fight against climate change with everything that we have and i'm hoping that these sorts of stories start to really tug the heartstrings and start yep. to change people's minds um, and hopefully we can see some some change in the next couple of decades Absolutely. A, a big problem, a big question, a big solution uh, that is required here, uh, but ultimately one that we need to start ticking away at today, um, you know, to make sure that more of these things don't happen in the future. Now, let's move on a little bit to something else, Barry. We're talking about uh, innovation and, uh, you know, essentially how we currently have light shining at our faces from fantastic angles. And uh, you've found a bit of an end of an era. Take us through it. Yeah, this is kind of a bittersweet one. When I found this, I didn't realize I cared about this, but when I read the story, it kind of it kind of hit me at home. Um, like you say, light is such an important piece of the modern day world, right? And yep. the invention of the light bulb was one of those historic moments that like, kind of really is in every single history book. It is one of those turning points where human civilization went to the next level. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot of debate as to actually invented the light bulb. But of course, Thomas Edison is given that is given that mantelpiece because he got the patent first. Lots of drama there. We won't get into that today. But Thomas Edison's light bulb um, was a revolution and really changed the world. And uh, the, the way he kind of scaled that, that invention and made it commercial and kind of got it into the rest of the world was by creating a merger with a company that we now know as General Electric, right, yep. back in 1892. And that merger really was the start of the electrical revolution and kind of led to a whole bunch of things in the, in the future. And General Electric became one of the biggest companies in the world and still is one of the biggest companies in the world on yep. the basis of that lighting stuff, right? And so for al- almost 130 years now, they've been selling Edison's light bulb and they've been like kind of the no as those people um, and uh, because of that they've been able to expand their business and become like a giant behemoth right now Chad they make a lot of money from lending activities from defense contracting from manufacturing they, they, they manufacture jet engines and wind turbines and x-ray machines and ventilators sure. etc and so they go do a whole wide range of things and the news that came this week was that the, after, 100, after almost 130 years of, of, of selling Edison's light bulb, <laughs> they are finally selling their lighting division to another company. 
And so it is the end of an era because it is, it is the end of General Electric being in the lighting business. And so they're selling it to a company called Savant Systems for an undisclosed amount. Um, and it's kind of a symbolic end to that era, like you say. It's one of those things where that was Edison's kind of legacy. Yeah. That company was Edison's legacy. And it's now being passed into someone else's hands. Yeah, it definitely is an end of an era, and I'm glad you flagposted it here for us to look back on, I suppose, and uh, and really just appreciate that very, very important invention. The one thing, though, I suppose, Barry, is that the light bulb has evolved quite a lot over time. I now have one that I can turn on using Wi-Fi. I can even change the color. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it certainly, certainly does beg the question whether that patent is worth as much as it was back in the day. I suppose that is just the, the plain, you know, normal 60-watt bulbs that you get. I don't know. Is that the case? Um, I suppose f from then you've got fluorescent lights, you've got LED lights now, um, and all sorts of others in between. Yeah, it really, it really has got a lot more complicated since Edison's days, that's for <laughs> sure. And uh, I think, I think it's, it's really shown how we've moved towards more energy-saving type devices yeah. and energy-saving lights. Like you say, there's all sorts of fancy customization you can now do with colors and all sorts of fancy things. And so it certainly has moved a long way from that that lonely patent. But that patent <laughs> was the first of its kind, right? Yeah. It was the first kind of movements for the electrical revolution and if you think about how much we rely on light and electricity in general um, it really is a stark moment of history that really shows us what humanity is able to accomplish with simple inventions like that right yeah. and who knows how much of today's productivity today's work sure. today's world can be tested who knows how much today's world can kind of be attributed to that sort of invention, right, or that sort of innovation. Um, and what I think is also interesting, Chad, is that if we think about it, it's still kind of part of our modern parlance. We still think when someone gets a new idea, it's a light bulb moment. Yep. It's, it's, it's yeah. still a symbolic nature, right? We kind of Definitely. we kind of see the light bulb as, as symbolic of a new idea because when that light comes on, oh, something has happened. And so I think it's more than just the light bulb itself. It's what it means for us when we think about innovation and creativity. And so, yeah, long live Edison's light bulb and long live the new ideas and innovation that it kind of brought into the world and who knows when our next light bulb moment is going to be <laughs> absolutely spot on Barry and I think you're completely right I think as we chat right now looking at an LED or LCD screen that is powered by backlit technology would we actually be able to do that uh, without this kind of light innovation and uh, I suppose where we had to previously rely on the sun and candles the sad thing Chad is that sometimes in South Africa we still have to rely on candles <laughs> because of our darling <laughs> but uh, we'll put them aside for today. <laughs> for today, for today. Well, let's move on then to the sphere of mixed martial arts and I suppose the behemoth of this space, the Irish contender, Conor McGregor. And uh, he apparently is announcing his retirement from fighting again. Yeah, he is, Chad. The Notorious has decided to call it quits on his fighting days. Yep. And of course, Conor McGregor is the number one name in the sport, right? He is kind of the, the big crowd pull. He earns the biggest bucks when he fights. And he's my favorite fighter by a long way, just because he's such an amazing showman, such an entertaining personality. Yes. So like beyond his actual skills, which is which is world class, I mean, he's an incredible fighter with a record of 22 and 4. And uh, he, was, he was the first person ever to hold two different weight classes at the same time. So uh, really a world class Hall of Fame mixed martial arts fighter. But what made him famous, Chad, was more than that. It was his showmanship. Yep. It was his trash talk at the press conferences. It was his suits. There's like amazing like <laughs> custom suits that he's pitched up to, to his press conferences in. And he really was a showman. He understood how the world of fighting works. 
and how you have to really make it an event, right? All those fight promotions are exactly that, trying to create the biggest event possible. And he was the king of that. And so it really is a big blow to announce retirement. I mean, I think that he he's kind of said that he doesn't really have the motivation anymore, especially in this coronavirus yeah. world. He can't really see a future where he has a motivation with lots of people he wants to fight. And so he thinks he's going to call it quits. It's rather young. It was kind of a surprise, I think. A lot of people wanted him to fight for a lot longer. But then the other side of the coin is that he has retired before and he's right. come back. <laughs> so who knows if this is the final one or if it's yeah. another piece of his showmanship. We'll have to wait and see. But for the moment, he is stepping away from fighting. And uh, I, for one, am a bit sad about that. Like, I really enjoyed watching him fight. He really was a, a really fascinating character and a really interesting guy. And very controversial in some in some cases. He's definitely had his fair share of stuff out of the octagon. But as an entertainer and as a fighter, he really is world class. And we'll have to wait to see. Maybe a Floyd Mayweather flight number two will pull him out of retirement. We don't know, Chad. Hey, we never know about those kinds of things. But I think the really important thing here is to look at how he actually conveyed his retirement message. And, you know, traditionally, you would call a press briefing of his own um, or, you know, leak it through a paper or, or something like that. Where here he's actually taken to, I suppose, the more new age way of doing things, which is by putting out a tweet for something as big as this, Barry. Does that satisfy you at all? I don't know, Chad. It feels more authentic, I think. I think that a press conference sometimes can feel a little bit forced and a little bit over the top. Uh, it was a very simple tweet. It was literally something like, hey, guys, what's up? I'm going to be <laughs> quitting fighting. Thank you so much for all your support over the years, et cetera, et cetera. And a photo with him and his mom. Oh. And so it really was a very simple tweet. Uh, and so like you say, it is a very new age way to do it. I mean, I've been recently watching the Michael Jordan documentary. When he retired, there was like 10,000 cameras <laughs> and all sorts of chaos. Um, but a simple tweet, that's all it takes. Um, I, th I, for one, think it's a good move. Um, he's made his money already. He does not yeah. need to stay in the, in the game. So save yourself some brain damage. Go and be with your family. I know he's yeah. got a young son. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think he's done incredibly well in his career, and he's leaving on top, leaving on a high. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm chuffed for him, and I wish him all the best on this, on this new journey. Absolutely. I still haven't watched that uh, Michael Jordan documentary, but I've heard really good things. And I suppose an, an interesting comparison as well, because also he didn't retire once either. Definitely. And so, Chad, I'm almost done with it. So I'm definitely going to have it for the next episode. So nice. tune in next week to have a good discussion about it. It's a fascinating documentary and really, really well done. Uh, for me, I'm not a big basketball fan. I haven't yep. watched much of it at all. But Michael Jordan is one of those names that everyone knows, regardless of whether you know the sport or not. And there's good reason for that. So tune in next week and we'll discuss the last dance really looking forward to it for now let's move on to our next segment stuff i found interesting yeah, so I tried to change the name of the segment this week, but unfortunately, Chad wouldn't let me in it. It's stuff I found interesting. And uh, what I wanted to chat about today, Chad, was a fascinating article I read from one of my favorite writers, a guy by the name of Scott Alexander. And he writes on a, on a blog called Slate Star Codex. Okay. And uh, for anyone who's looking it up, it's, it's a very difficult blog to read. He's a very, very smart guy, and the articles are crazy technical sometimes. So bear with me here. But this particular article, I think, is, is more relevant for a wider audience. And I think it's a very important one and it's talking about the idea of paywalled articles now chad i know that you know this because when we go looking for news stories for this podcast <laughs> we often come across these stories where the yep. headline grabs us we click that headline and then it gets there and it's like the wall street journal would like you to pay 19 dollars a month to access this <laughs> article and uh, i don't know about you but i get very frustrated by those yep. because uh, obviously the the, the the title makes you curious you want to figure out what's going on but then i'm not wanting to pay 19 dollars a month for it yeah 
And I think that this is a, a, a trend we're continuing to see as people start to fight against the advertising-based model, right? Traditionally, all these sites would have lots of ads all over their site, and that's how they would fund their journalism. But with these days, with lots of ad blockers in place, people can kind of hide those ads, and the ads aren't working as well as they used to. Sites are looking for other ways to get their revenue. So sometimes they go to subscription models where they're saying, cool, if you pay the New York Times 8 or $9 a month, you can read all of their stuff, and you log in with your account, and then you have full access. Sometimes they have a bunch of free articles so you say you have five free articles a month and then after that you have to pay a certain amount to get them yeah. sometimes it's certain articles are free certain articles are paywalled it's all very confusing <laughs> and what is frustrating is that there are lots of problems with the system that we haven't figured out yet. And so what this article goes into is talking about some of those problems and why we need to kind of fix this model because it's not working for anybody. I don't think it's a good experience for the user yeah. and at the same time, it's, I don't think it's a good experience for the actual journalist either. And that's what this article kind of talks about. So what I thought we'd do, Chad, is go through his three problems and then talk about our thoughts on each. The first one is kind of something I've already alluded to, and that's the idea of clickbait, right? Headlines are always clickbaity. Anyone who uses the internet in today's age understands that, that notion because it's yep. everywhere you see, yep. right? And the idea is to make the headline as catchy as possible to then force you to click that thing and then earn the revenue on the other side. And so... I don't know about you, Chair, but I find myself sometimes you'll wake up in the morning and you'll go into your Twitter, onto your blogs, onto Google, whatever, and you'll see a headline that looks fascinating, <laughs> but it's something you never even thought about before, Definitely. right? So it's some, some sort of random abstract thing, but the way the headline is, is, is sculpted, all of a sudden your curiosity takes hold and you're like, I need to know what happened. I need to know what happened. Even though you weren't thinking about that ever. It's like I never thought this occurred to you. Yeah. And you click on you click on that that link to try and relieve that itch of curiosity. Um, and then the paywall comes up. And all of a sudden you can't relieve that itch. Yeah. And there's a really there's a real frustration there because the, the curiosity was created by them with their headline. It wasn't yeah. like you were looking for that information. In, in some cases, it just, it just comes across your, your, your path and you're like, oh, I feel really curious and I want to figure that out, but I'm not willing to pay for that value. And so that clickbait nature kind of leads to a lot of inefficiencies in the system where there's information that I potentially want that I can't get access to or don't value enough to pay for, but at the same time, I wasn't looking for it in the first place. I kind of was drawn into it by clickbait. And that's an interesting debate, I think. Well, there's lots of interesting things there to, to chat about. And, and for me, the one that I wanted to, I suppose, focus on for the initial part of the discussion is really how it comes across your screen, how it cross, comes across your eyes in the first place. And I suppose if we look at, at Apple and various things that they've done, uh, looking at the news app as a good example, um, where you've got this news app that is, I suppose, given the default top part of your notification segment, really. Um, and... I suppose this is a bit of a switch in the world of news where you've kind of switched to a more RSS feed type model, I suppose, where all of these newspapers and uh, all of these news houses feed into one platform to deliver this, I guess, more balanced sense of news. But for me, it seems like they've used that as an opportunity to introduce these paywalls because previously I wouldn't have been looking at one of these services that I know has a paywall. And um, whereas now it's almost like they've been able to sneak into my cell phone, I suppose, and, and give me these interesting headlines only to let me down. Don't you think that's an interesting evolution of the news medium? 
it really is. And you're actually hitting one of Scott's points is 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 the idea that we don't know what's paywalled and what's not paywalled, right? Yeah. Uh, a, a while ago, you'd understand, cool, these newspapers are paywalled, and therefore I know I can just ignore those, and these ones aren't, and I can go to those if I want, or I can choose to pay for the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or yeah. whatever it is. But nowadays, things are so confusing because newspapers have different policies based on different topics and based on how yeah. recent an article is and based on a whole bunch of different things that you actually have no clue until you click on that thing, whether you have to pay to read that information or not. And that is not a good user experience, especially if you click on three or four in a row and they are all paywalled and yeah. you don't realize it, right? Yeah. And so one of his kind of suggestions to try how to improve this is that people should be forced to put like a little dollar sign after the article headline if it is paywalled. And that's also very interesting because, of course, that would be hugely debatable because the whole idea of clickbait is to get you to the site mm -hmm. and then like convince you that there's value there. And if you're able to ignore simply on those dollar signs, it'll cause a whole bunch of new chaos. But I think it's an interesting suggestion as to what the future could look like. If you knew that this article is, is valuable and, and you think it's worth it and you see the little paywall figure, maybe you're willing to go and pay for it. But if there's something that's not that valuable to you and you kind of don't really it doesn't really going to change your life. It's just kind of a curiosity thing. You could then ignore all of those and only click on the ones where you know you can see the information. I think it's an interesting suggestion. And I suppose on the on the ethical front, it, it seems like the right thing to do. Uh, straight before clicking on that link, you can make that decision as to whether it's that headline is worth paying money for. Um, I suppose whether your curiosity on that topic is something that you're keen to cash up for. Um, so for me, it's a great suggestion. I, I, I like the suggestion, but I get your concerns as well um, on its implementation, I suppose. Um, and it really is interesting, like you say, in terms of these paywalls, because a lot of times I've opened pages, the ones that you referred to before. And on my side, I'm not a paying member I have full access to the article. I send it to Barry, and for some reason, he's got the paywall on it. Really interesting stuff. Yeah, there's so much behind the scenes. Sometimes if you go from a social media platform, you can have a different experience to just going there from a Google search. Or sometimes, yeah. like you say, based on geography or based on time or recency, there's a whole bunch of ways they try and figure out what is the right balance between free and paid. And I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to maximize their revenue and trying to like do the A-B testing and is it necessary to figure out how do we convince this person that this newspaper is worth paying for? Yeah. And how do we give them just enough to whet their appetite so that they want more and they're willing to pay? So I understand the business model from a user perspective when you don't have a clue as to, you don't know what's going to work you don't know which sites are going to work like you say you send links to your friends and they can't <laughs> open it it's a frustrating experience all around and yep. i think it needs to change in some way i just don't know what the solution is absolutely barry well why don't you talk us through some of the other points you got from this article yeah so the second one is talking about echo chambers and this is something that i'm very passionate about but i've never yep. actually thought about it like this and so that's why i thought this article was really good um basically talking about the fact that when a headline makes a bold claim, right, so it has some sort of big stat in it, for example, a coronavirus stat that is in the public interest, right, so it makes some claims saying there's some percentage and there's a, there's a link you ought to click on to get more information. Um, if that, if then that article, which is in the public interest and, and should be for the public good, is paywalled, it restricts access to only people who can actually afford it, right? Or yeah. only people who see value in that information. And so what that does is it might it might restrict people from being able to criticize or to fact check or to do some sort of research on that information that is in the public interest. 
So instead of someone seeing the, seeing the headline, clicking in, and then like fact-checking things, because they can't see the article, they just assume the headline is true. Yeah. And they're able to just run with that idea and kind of talk about that, and that becomes, that becomes fact. Whereas if you were able to see the article and fact-check and like look at the other side of the coin, you might be able to say that that article is not true. Yeah. And so if, that's, if the public square, which is kind of where public conversation happens, if there is a fee to get into that public square, it automatically reduces the size of the public square because it restricts who can actually get there. And it makes it less diverse, right? If I am, if I am a liberal and I'm paying for the New York Times, I'm not then going to pay for a conservative newspaper and vice versa yeah. because I like going to going to like follow my own unique beliefs. And so there's an argument to be made that articles that are in the public interest or that have public good attached to them need to be ac- need to be accessible to everybody because that's what democracy is all about. And I think that that was the initial kind of motive for the newspaper. Like the idea of the fourth estate is exactly that, that it's a public good yep. and it needs to be accessible to everybody for as low a fee as possible to ensure that we can all have these discussions. And the moment it goes behind paywalls, it contributes to the filter bubble effect that we're trying to avoid. 100%. I think you're completely correct. Uh, when you look at a headline, you don't really see the context. You don't really see how they got to that. And to, to be able to challenge assumptions, um, you obviously need to have access to the information. So I completely agree with that there. What's the next one? Yeah, so the last one is kind of an overlap of some of the stuff we've been chatting about already. And it's that idea of the inefficiency. So the frustration of clicking through five links and they are all paywalled. And you have to get to the sixth link to get any actual information. <laughs> and especially when you're looking for something specific and you're, like, you're searching for a news story, there's been reported by everybody that really is an inefficient use of time and effort so like the author says scott alexander says that we should have some sort of uh, little tag next to it on the google search to let you know if it's paywalled or not and google could definitely do that because it doesn't yeah. hurt them necessarily but it would cause a very sour taste in the publisher's mind if we were able to ignore all the paywalled articles automatically and not have a chance to even see like what they were um, and so lots of interesting debates here, Chad. I think paywalls are here to stay for the moment. Uh, we're all trying to figure out better economic models than the advertising-based model because it's got a lot of flaws that we're starting to uncover. Yeah. Um, but paywalls still has a long way to go. And I think that we have to learn some of these mistakes and learn some of these problems so that we can actually figure out what is a better way to move forward. Completely agree. I mean, the fact that a lot of these paywalls rely on ongoing subscriptions for me just isn't good enough. What if I could pay to see this one article what if i could pay per view if you'd like surely then i can use the article as a basis to, to gauge whether i'm actually prepared to enter into this ongoing subscription and uh, like you said barry i think even just more transparency over the methods with which they use to choose who gets to see that paywall and who doesn't at least we're all then on a level playing field and we know what we're in for Definitely. Just one last thing I want to jump on that point you made, which is brilliant, is that the idea of paying per article. I think that one of the one of the key use cases for cryptocurrency in the very beginning was yeah. talking about that. How do you do small micro payments on the internet that can then reward individual writers? Definitely. So for example, you might want to support the whole New York Times, but you might want to support individual writers or contributors. In the same way that we're looking to to kind of support and, and, and contribute to, to creators who are creating on YouTube or on blogs, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, these kind of micro payments might be the future of this where you're able to say cool i'm willing to spend a little bit of money for for this particular article for this particular time in my yeah, life yeah. and i don't have to spend nine dollars a month for everything the new york times writes maybe it's only just one thing and i want to contribute in this small way if we can get that sort of ecosystem going and that sort of structure going that to me seems like a much more kind of capable and much more 
reliable and sustainable way moving forward that still is away from ads but actually supports the right work and that creates kind of a marketplace for for writers and for ideas where we support the writers that really make a difference completely completely agree and that's a great use case of blockchain technology i suppose where the hurdle for these types of transactions for the recipient is the amount of fees that's going to be cut off of processing that transaction and i suppose when you look at blockchain you know ultimately you get that to a really negligible level one of the other things with that is you get to spend the same amount of money that you would have on a blanket subscriptions um, where instead of somebody else choosing what kind of comes into that subscription you get to pick and choose the things that speak to you over the different platforms like you mentioned youtube you could be on an article a blog you could be on a podcast and and really just contributing um in in that way and i think that is definitely a fascinating uh, case study and maybe something you need to get working on barry <laughs> definitely chad i think that micro payments is a very fascinating space yeah. especially in fintech i've seen a lot of companies around the world working on this idea it's certainly not a new idea yeah, yeah. but like you say it's very difficult to change the mindset of the consumer one of the things that one of the hurdles we have to jump over is that we get we've gotten so used to getting things for free we've gotten so used to watching tons of videos and reading tons of stuff for free and we have to start getting the consumers to realize that these things actually cost money to create yeah. and to produce and if we want sustainable like, creations from these people we very talented writers and creators and videographers etc we have to be able to support them to do what they do exactly. and this might be a way like you say to do it so instead of paying a huge amount i can pick and choose and only support the creators that I actually care about and the rest can be supported by their own audiences instead of subsidizing the whole New York Times because I want to support one author or yep. one columnist I can then pick and choose and really be more specific with how I value that stuff and so I think it's a very positive step forward if we can get that right technically it's a bit challenging but there's a lot of people working on it and so I look forward to seeing the, the innovation in that space me too let's then move on to our next segment Looking Ahead. This week on Looking Ahead, we are chatting about the future of education. And I think during this whole pandemic, Chad, we've seen a big shift in how we think Definitely. about education going forward. Because all of a sudden, you haven't been able to go into campus, you haven't even been able to do those normal face-to-face -face lectures and the traditional type of education you would have liked. Yep. And everything has had to shift online out of necessity. And some of the learnings we've had from this online shift is that hold on a minute, maybe there's some things that we don't need to go in and be in person for, right? Maybe mm -hmm. the, the value of this traditional education in person is maybe not what we thought it was. And that reality check as to what these education systems actually are for and, and what we're actually paying for has been quite an interesting one. And so I pulled out an article chatting about what the future education could look like when it's a hybrid model between in person and online. Because I think it's pretty uncontroversial to say that there's certainly value in in-person stuff. There certainly sure. is value and that, that, that sort of networking, that sort of collaboration, that sort of community. But also there are certain things that could easily be done from home. And uh, I think a hybrid model is probably where we're going to end up at, at some stage in the future. And so there's an article by a guy called Scott Galloway, and he predicts quite a radical solution here, Chad. He predicts a handful of elite, what he calls cyborg universities. I love that. <laughs> they, he believes that they're going to soon monopolize education as big tech companies move into education. Okay. Right? So, for example, the companies like Google and Facebook and, and Apple and all these guys which we chat about every single week, they have a huge incentive to try and get the best talent they can. Right? They, they kind of rely on top talent coming out of universities and going to work at these companies. Yep. 
And so he, pre he predicts that these guys are going to go to the major I Ivy League and elite universities in the States and form partnerships. He gave some name examples, such as MIT at Google or iStanford or Harvard <laughs> x Facebook, etc. And the idea would be to partner up with these universities and provide a hybrid model between online and in-person stuff that really is super relevant and super tied to the jobs at those companies. So, for example, if you want to go into tech, maybe it's worth, like, actually learning from Google itself. They know what skills they need. They know where they're going with the company. They know who they're going to be hiring and what kind of roles they want to hire for. Why not get involved in education from the very beginning? And so by combining kind of the, the, the elite kind of top-class education from Stanford with a very real practical hands-on kind of learning from a Google, from a Facebook, maybe that's a much better value proposition. And maybe we're willing to pay for that more so than a four-year degree, which might not be relevant because the curriculum might not be tied to what's actually needed in the world. So a very interesting debate about what the future education is going to be. And are these tech companies, are, going, are they going to get into this value chain and get further and further closer to those students to ensure that they get the right people coming out to have the right skills. Absolutely. It is such a fascinating discussion. And it almost feels in a way like the cycle is kind of turning around in a full circle again where our parents would have you know focused more on trades and I guess getting that practical experience and the things that are, are used day to day um, where we instead then have studied degrees. And we're almost coming back now to, to that stage of you know what is valuable what what do we actually uh, value in society this actually sparked an interesting thought in my mind which is Barry we actually met doing uh, a hybrid type course um, which was done through UCT and that whole course was provided on a platform called Get Smarter and uh, the founders the two founders of that platform which were two brothers uh, Sam and Rob Paddock actually ended up selling that platform for 1.4 billion rand um, and obviously I mean as users of the platform you know it certainly certainly was for me a, a new way of, of learning. And I can definitely see uh, how this is going to become the new normal. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, that whole program was very, very slick. And I don't know what you felt, Trevor, but it really was very well put together. Yeah. And we certainly learned a lot. And that hybrid model really worked well. And so I do think this is the future. I think one of, the, one of your points about going back to a trade-based economy makes sense because the information is now democratized, yeah. right? Knowledge used to be in those walls. You had to go and pay all that money and go spend four years because the knowledge was kind of paywalled in yeah. a sense behind those walls but in the age of the internet all that actual knowledge is out there if you if you have the resourcefulness if you have an internet connection if you yeah. have some sort of willingness to learn it's all out there for free Definitely. there are tons and tons of resources available and so it's about trying to figure out what are the skills you need the knowledge is all there you can learn that in your own time you don't need someone to teach that to you necessarily yeah. but it's the skills and understanding what can I do with my hands or my brain or my mind that is really valuable in the 21st century world? And unfortunately, traditional education has kind of fallen behind in that. We haven't seen much innovation in the space. It's still the same old lectures, the same kind of boards, the same ways of assessing, the same tests, etc. Yep. And people like Get Smarter, people like Coursera and all of these, these online course uh, companies are really trying to challenge that and trying to think, is there a better way to do this? And uh, I think Get Smart is a great example because it's a really South African like success story, one yeah. of the biggest success stories coming out of the country. And, but it hasn't really impacted South African education, right? What's sad is that it was sold to a U.S. company and it's yeah. being like, used around the world. I don't think it's seen a big impact on South Africa's education system. Yeah. And so I think around the world, there's a lot of discussion about this. How do we make that change? How do we become more relevant? And I think this coronavirus has really forced that debate because all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I'm paying a lot of money to this university. And if Definitely. I can't go there in person, is it worth it anymore? And sometimes I don't think it is. 
100%. And I suppose in the South African context, uh, the next question is access to internet, access to, um, you know, being able to open a laptop and, and access these resources. And, you know, for a lot of regions in South Africa, that still is a big challenge. And I hope to see some sort of mass rollouts happen uh, from the government's end, um, you know, to actually push in this direction and, uh, you know, up the education throughout the country. I definitely think there's loads of strides to be made on that front. Let's now move on to our next segment. Develop and Grow. On Develop and Grow this week, we're chatting about something that happened just a few hours ago from time of recording, <laughs> Chad. So it's hot off the press. Nice. Um, and basically, it's chatting about the fact that last week, of course, we chatted about George Floyd and kind of the global conversation. Yep. And uh, it's no secret that me and Chad were both quite nervous to put that piece out sure. because it's a very sensitive topic. It's a very difficult topic. Yep. And we had to kind of make sure that what we what we said, we stand by and kind of it was a nuanced discussion. And we were trying to show both sides and whatnot. Yep. Um, and on the basis of that podcast from last week, a friend of mine reached out wanted to discuss some of the some of the thoughts some of the ideas and so i jumped on a skype call with her i'm not going to name her but she knows who she is <laughs> i jumped on a skype call with her this afternoon and spent just over two and a half hours discussing this thing wow. um, and she came with a bunch of like different points of view and different kind of disagreements in some some cases and some other thoughts that i hadn't considered yeah. and uh, the reason i wanted to bring it up and develop and grow was because I'm so fueled by those kind of conversations. It was such a wonderful example of what conversation can do and how it can push us forward. Because I learned a hell of a lot from her point of view and like kind of the points that she made. She learned a lot from where I was coming from. Yep. And that kind of respectful debate is so rare these days. It it's is. so, so rare. Yep. So often we are shouting at each other over Twitter or we are like uh, attacking each other's arguments based on like weak, weak ideas and weak, weak evidence. Yep. Um, and the idea of long discussions, nuanced discussions about difficult topics is something that is 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 unfortunately too rare in this world, I think, Chad. And it's one of the reasons we started this podcast was to have yeah. these sorts of difficult discussions, right? And uh, so this example, this this call this afternoon is really top of mind right now. And so I thought I'd pull through some of the ideas and some of the, the concepts, the meta skills that I think are important in these kind of discussions. The first idea that we talked about today was being able to entertain an idea without accepting it. Right, so the idea is like instead of just rejecting an idea straight off the bat because you disagree with it, can you ask yourself what if this was true? Yep. And what that question does was it pushes you down a path where you try and see the other side of the story. It forces you to try and put yourself in the other person's shoes and not just reject it off the bat. Yep. So often when someone comes to us with something we disagree with and it kind of maybe it feels like it attacks us personally because it feels like it attacks a belief of ours, we want to be defensive straight away. We want to like throw it away and tell them how stupid they are. And if you're able to just entertain that idea and take it seriously just for a moment, you're in a much better position to understand where the other person is coming from and then to see if it has merit or not. And that's a great first step, I think, Chad. 100%. I, I love the idea of this discussion and I love the fact that you put it down here to talk about uh, in this episode because you're right. I think it is completely, completely rare these days where I suppose we try to connect with as many people as possible and really just try to keep tabs of, you know, the practical things, how everyone's coping with what's happening and just trying to fulfill our, our normal social needs without probing a little bit deeper into some of our key thoughts and, you know, some real important topics, I suppose. Um, and you're completely right. I think far too often we hold this position and we almost feel like if we 
bring up a topic with a friend, you know, it could almost damage a friendship in a, in a meaningful way. And I sometimes think it is quite silly, but at the same time, I think sometimes we put up these walls that actually question our approachability really on these topics. And I suppose sometimes the way that we voice our opinions um, don't really lead too much to be argued with or lead too much to be challenged. Um, and I suppose that's also something that uh, we need to work on ourselves as well. Yeah, we, we actually spent the first, we were kind of laughing at ourselves because we, we spent the first 10 minutes trying to reassure each other <laughs> <laughs> that we weren't going to take things personally, right? And try and reassure each other that I like you as a friend. I'm not going to lose you as a friend because of a belief you have or some yep. sort of idea you have, right? And so we kind of spent 10 minutes doing it and we're like, actually, it's silly. Like we, we got to the point, right? We, we understand. <laughs> and I think the key thing is that your ideas are not you, Yep. In some in some senses, right? So so you can have a certain idea that disagrees with someone. Doesn't mean you can't be friends with them. Doesn't mean sure. you can't relate to them in some way. And so setting that foundation, at the beginning of the discussion, is important to realize that. Listen, I'm saying this because I want to debate this topic. I don't want to lose you. I don't want to insult you. I don't want to like make you feel defensive. And so we spend a good ten minutes reassuring each other first, Chad. And that's kind of how we got past that. But like you <laughs> said, it's 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 true. If you're not approachable, if you're not able to have those debates, you're never going to have them because people are too scared. They don't want to lose the friendship because of a debate about some topic that maybe isn't that important maybe it's something that's like on your mind and whatnot but it doesn't relate to your character or your person sometimes um, and so it's important to be approachable in that way so that's a great point the next thing which kind of is, is kind of a, a carry-on is this idea of being willing to make a mistake yep. and being forgiving of someone who makes a mistake i think we're living in a culture right now where you can have one tweet where you made a mistake from 20 2002 right 20 years ago if you want yep. and uh, if if that mistake gets pulled out that tweet gets pulled out you get cancelled there's a whole idea this cancel culture and your career is over and that is very worrying because it means that people are scared to speak out and they're scared Definitely. to speak their mind so often chad i mean we know this from the podcasting the podcasting stuff is that we often don't know what we think until we start talking about it yep. and when we start talking about it we realize oh wait a minute that's a bit silly wait a minute maybe i haven't thought that through well enough <laughs> and so it's the ability to to make that mistake and and be willing to forgive someone for making a mistake right if i say something that's wrong and you correct me and i change my mind and that's how it's supposed to be but if, if i if you're gonna take one quote of mine one mistake that i made and then kind of base my whole character on that and attack me because of it, that's a mistake. And that's where conversations break down. Yep. And so being willing to accept that we do make mistakes, we speak out of turn, we use words incorrectly, we, we say something we don't mean because we can't figure out the right way to say it, and that is the battle of communication. And if you're not willing to be forgiving, Chad, you're never going to get anywhere. Completely, completely right. And, uh, you know, just listening to that 10-minute prequel to your conversation is is hilarious. <laughs> um, but it's something that I would completely do myself. I often watch these series like Suits uh, where they have these heated discussions amongst partners and, you know, ultimately the next day they've kind of moved on. And I really struggle to see those types of conversations happening in my personal life, even in my work life, you know, throughout uh, my professional career so far. And I really wonder what it is that's stopping us from, from getting to that stage. Are we maybe too concerned sometimes with the niceties and trying to just avoid conflict. I suppose it's, it's really a worrying thing then. Definitely. It, it, it's a very serious problem where we don't have the courage to speak out because we're worried we're going to lose something much more serious, right? And so obviously these conversations are had, hopefully, with people you have rapport with, right? Yeah. So I don't I don't expect you to go into the streets and start talking about this with a random stranger, right? Yeah. But with a friend of yours who kind of knows you quite well, you should be able to say to him, listen, can we play with this idea? Can we entertain some things and talk about some things? And it shouldn't actually affect your relationship. In essence, it should actually make it better because you're being honest with them. 
For some reason, we find it very difficult to be honest with the people that are closest to us, right? Because there's more to lose. They're the higher stakes. We don't want to lose this person from our life. And so often we aren't honest with them. We We don't speak up because we're scared about it. And that's exactly the opposite. Those are the people we should be able to be the most honest with because they see us for who we are and they see they know us better than anyone else. And so I think it comes with practice, Chad. I think that we have to take the courage to be able to say, listen, I've been thinking about this thing. Would you mind if we sat and kicked it around for a bit and just like listen to me and kind of work through this as I think yeah. and not be too committed to a certain idea? And if you do that in the right tone, in the right manner, and the other person comes and meets you halfway, it really can turn into an amazing thing. And that's what I found with my conversation today. It really was cool. The last thing I want to chat about, Chad, is something we've chatted about a lot on this podcast, the idea of being able to change your mind and being willing to change your mind. So many of us are so stuck in our ways. Once we believe something, we refuse to entertain (laughs) anything else. And the idea of when you see other evidence that disproves what you think, letting go of the ego and the pride and being able to say, oh, that makes sense. I'm going to change my mind. Just that, that small thing for me is a huge indicator of some sort of intellectual honesty, some sort of humility and a loss of ego where you realize that you don't know everything. Right? There are things that you don't know. There are yeah. things that you're wrong about. And th- the whole journey of life is trying to figure out where those are and trying to fix those. And if you're not willing to change your mind, you're never going to get there. So that's a key ingredient in this, being willing to honestly listen to someone else's point of view and be in a position to change your mind if the evidence presents itself. Absolutely. It's fundamental and it's really important. And the way you described it, I really think about one of those games where you have this map that's just blacked out the whole map and only when your character actually starts exploring can you see different parts of the map and it's kind of the same thing like you said Barry you don't know where those gaps or those holes are until you actually venture out into these kind of territories and venture out into these topics Um, and I think that's some really really great insight that you got there from your two and a half hour conversation and uh, it sounds like a great one I certainly need to roll some of these conversations out into my circle of friends so if you are a friend of mine listening to this podcast hit me up with a message and uh, let's have a couple of hours chats on some core beliefs and i'd be fascinated to hear some of your views chad's calling you out you heard him you heard him ladies and gents and i think also for listeners for the show like we really encourage you to send some feedback on some of these stories right so this conversation was based off our previous segment on george floyd and whatnot and that was kind of the starting point and one of the most amazing things about podcasts and blogs and whatnot is they are starters for conversations Definitely. they're like those little kindling they kind of are the catalyst to conversation so if you do have any strong feelings or experiences we'd love to hear them please get in touch with us across any of our social media channels we'd love to hear we'd love to chat we'd love to hear what you guys think and uh, then it becomes a more nuanced debate because of course me and Chad are coming at it from our perspective we have a very narrow view a very narrow kind of background we'd love to hear your story so please do reach out if that's the case and if if the spirit moves you absolutely and just before you click off from this episode barry what are our social media platforms yes indeed chad we are slowly moving into every single channel imaginable so <laughs> whatever your channel of choice is we got you covered on facebook we are across the pond podcast on instagram we are at across the podcast and on twitter we are at across underscore podcast so search us on all those platforms we really love to connect with you and yeah. uh, hear your thoughts we also are sharing a lot of like cool little tidbits so lots of links any links we chat about on the show any pictures we're sharing on our instagram and our twitter and our facebook so it's a great way to kind of get some bite-sized chunks of the podcast we'd love to see you there and, and, and hear your stories absolutely well thanks again for listening and we'll see you next week this was episode 31 of across the pond 
across the pond with Barry and Chad.